Hi, I'm Chris Wright, and welcome to this week's edition of Right on the Nail. Each week, I'm joined by those in the know to discuss politics, media, business, sports, entertainment, and lots, lots more. And this week, we have a brilliant panel for our News Roundtable episode. Joining me today are Samantha Smith, political commentator and spectator columnist, and Murad Qureshi, former London Assembly member and Labour Party activist. So we have a very, very interesting uh, conversation ahead of us, and we're going to start off with a non-British political item, which is actually the situation in Brazil, where the supporters of the outgoing President Bolsonaro took a little bit of a leaf out of what happened with Donald Trump and the Capitol building in Washington on January the 6th, a couple of years ago, and decided to basically storm the Congress. And we're now seeing basically so many things that are exactly replica of what happened. Mm -hmm. People not accepting the the result of the election, people feeling that if they don't like uh, the way that the voting's being, being handled, that they've got a real reason for trying to take matters into their own hands. It seems like this is a very, very alarming trend, which, if it allows itself to develop, could be a threat to democracy worldwide. Or am I being a little bit uh, too paranoid, Morad? No, you're not, Chris. I think there is clearly a pattern. When I first heard the news through uh, the social media, uh, it wasn't quite sh- clear whether it was a coup by the police, the military and what have you. But when information did get through, it was quite clearly the supporters of Bolsonaro still agree about losing an election. And I think one of the things uh, any of us who've uh, attempted to get uh, democratic office or get off public office have got to accept uh, is when we lose. And they clearly haven't cottoned on to that. And it hasn't helped with their leader being sitting in, in Florida, clearly agitating for things. So I'm, I'm grateful that the uh, that Biden's come in and said, uh, told Brazilians they've got to accept the results and welcomes uh, President Lula to begin and have a, a working relationship with them. Do you think that we can all accept the way that voting is handled, not just in the UK or in America or Brazil, anywhere in general? Can we actually accept that voting is fair? Because actually... There are so many instances in America where Trump was saying there were problems with machines, problems with postal votings. I mean, it's not exactly an exact science, is it? I mean, something could go wrong. Yeah, I, I, I've seen elections around the world. And uh, funnily enough, I, I think our British ones are very, a, a very peculiar set. I mean, for example, uh, many other places, they, they start counting as soon as the, the polling stations are open. Don't leave at the very end, you know, when we have the big black boxes. Uh, and and, and uh, we have those uh, big sessions of uh, counts and what have you. Um, technology has got a role to play, and we've got to be confident that the technology deals with all the security concerns you can imagine. I just think more recently, though, we are having people knocking the system and how it functions and what have you, and they're, they're all technical legal challenges, which lose the public quite honestly. You know, the hanging chad stuff that we had when uh, Bush Jr. came in first, it's been continuing, and unfortunately, it has become a feature of elections around the world um, that the opponents seem to immediately challenge it on, on, on these technicalities, which doesn't help the work of the, no. the officers involved in, in the whole process. It, it doesn't, but Sam, if, if there is any question at all about voting being unreliable, then surely, you know, this kind of situation is going to develop and, and get much more proliferant, you know, throughout the world. I think that, the honestly, the riots that we saw at the Capitol, the riots that we saw in, in Brazil in favour of Bolsonaro, are not so much a result of unreliable voting systems, in, in my opinion, but a result of political radicalization. What we've seen in the last 10 years or even perhaps even longer than that, is the radicalization and increased divisiveness of our political systems, not just in the UK, but around the world. I don't think that we've ever lived in a more divided society when it comes to the left versus the right, the us versus them mentality. There seems to be no room for nuance or the acceptance of, of spirited debate or the acceptance of election results in, in today's society. And I think that you know democracy is never going to be perfect. 
we're never going to be able to have a perfect system that's completely devoid of any loopholes or, or failings. I mean, computers, notoriously unreliable. We saw in the US yesterday, for example, just on a different note, that the entire US computer system crashed for their flights and they had to, to ground all domestic and international flights for, for the US for around two hours because computers can be unreliable. I think in the UK, the fact that we still do the old, the good old fashioned ballot boxes and postal votes and counting by by person. Yes, it can seem a little bit archaic, but if anything, at least we're not reliant on computers. I would say that the, the threat of Brazil, we saw, I don't know if you saw reported yesterday or today in uh, on the BBC that another rally in favour of Bolsonaro was planned it was expected there would be hundreds or even thousands of of protesters and only three showed up there was a a row of armed guards and armed police and only three measly protesters sat on the street (laughs) so i would say that (laughs) brazil's the threat of brazil and those protesters might not be as as massive as say the american january 6th riots but overall it is it is significant because it shows a worrying trend towards the political extreme and the the idea that any election result that doesn't go in the way that you expect it to should automatically be discounted as fake news or the result of a rigged election when that in 99.9% of of cases just isn't the truth. But could it happen in other places where you have a particularly strong man leader or could be a strong woman leader of course but in places like say Turkey or India or or Hungary, or might we see this trend developing there too? I think that's why it's so important that we as a Western nation lead the way in in rejecting this political extremism, this idea that one leader should be the face of an entire party. Obviously, the party leader plays a big part in in dictating the direction of government, etc. But I, I think that we are seeing at the moment personalities rather than politicians. And we need to, I'd say we need a return to boring politics, if anything. The politics that is focused on policy making, on ideas, on, on the direction of the country rather than on ideology. And so as, as a Western nation, as a uh, global leader when it comes to democracy, I, I would say I'm quite proud of our, our democratic system. It should be the role of, of Britain to be one of the the forefathers in returning to good old fashioned nuanced political debate rather than allowing this sort of divisiveness to be stoked. Well this might this may be difficult. It may be something to do with the internet and the and the electronic delivery of information mm. which you get so quickly and the fact that so many different people can put conflicting views up on, on any subject straight away. I mean, maybe, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying and I think that's something that we should try and aspire to, but with the with the, the world we're living in now, maybe those are bygone days. Mm. Murad, I mean, it, it, are oh. we stuck with this? Yeah, I, I think we are. I mean, look, we, we, we live in an electronic age. I think what we have to trust is people's abilities to see through all the gloss and the shine and what have you. Sometimes that's actually very difficult, of course. Um, but uh, I think uh, a half decent education should allow you to to, to see through, see through all the all, all the stuff that's thrown up in the air when as and when issues come up. And I think we have seen recent instances like this. I mean. Uh, and it does. I think what it, what I think the most important characteristic we've had recently recently has been the personalities of individuals like Trump, where he would uh, never accept facts and challenge everything that was thrown at him. Um, and you know the paralysis that the the House of Representatives had recently in, in electing a speaker was was clearly down to him and his influence still. And it makes a mockery, dare I say, of Western democracies when. When, when the US is conducting affairs like this. And I also don't think politicians here put us in a very good light. Uh, we, uh, we were once regarded the, the mother of parliaments. Um, I, I'm not so sure after all the recent shenanigans that we can, we can hold that standard anymore. Uh, and I'm prepared to learn from other parts of the world. I think there are things to be learned through um, electronic voting and what have you. I mean, for, for example, all the trade union votes and what have you that I've come across have been done uh, like that, and that seems to be quite acceptable. Uh, why not uh, also um, when we're voting for 
uh, in local, national and regional elections in this country. The system, I feel, has got archaic and uh, let's, I, I think there's a role for technology, technology that people trust and feel comfortable with should be our way out of all this mess and, and debris. Yes, it's an interesting thought because, I mean, Samantha's coming at it from a different yeah. standpoint and I understand her point of view that mm-hmm. computers can go wrong and technology can go wrong and the old-fashioned system could well be best. But another aspect that troubles me to some extent also is the fact that young people do not vote like, mm. you know, the older generations do. And one of the reasons they don't vote, in my view, is that you have to trudge down to like a local school that's been closed for the day which could be about half a mile from walk or something like that and you've got to do these old-fashioned things about getting a piece of paper out and sticking a pen on it and whereas they do vote regularly in things like x factor and and uh, i'm a celebrity get me out of here and i think you know to a young person they probably oh voting's easy you just click on a button boy that and I mean, i'm thinking well actually for a general election or if it was just clicking on a button that the young people at home would vote but they don't. And that's a worrying factor. I mean, Sam, what, what do you think about that as like a counter argument to what you're saying? I wouldn't say that, ne- that that argument is necessarily that that is necessarily able to be advanced, both in the way that, number one, we shouldn't be dumbing down our our electoral processes for the sake of, quote unquote, becoming more accessible. I don't think that it's a an issue of having to go down to a polling station or you know, having to having to um, get a, a postal vote registration card that's stopping young people from voting. I think it's that they're not engaged in politics. That's that's the bigger issue. People are more engaged in Love Island at my age than because I'm I'm 20. I'm by all accounts and purposes a young person, although at times I feel like a 60 year old woman at heart. Okay. I'm by all accounts and purposes a young person. My friends, you know, talk about the latest season of Love Island and what's going on on Love is Blind and, and all of that sort of stuff. They're far less politically engaged than older generations. And that's because political education, I will admit, isn't as accessible as it should be. I think that we're often not exposed to politics in a meaningful way or or led to understand how it affects us at a young age because you think oh I don't pay taxes I don't have a house I don't have a mortgage so why does it matter for me I'd say that increasing political education will make young people more engaged we saw with the the Scottish referendum the independence referendum back in what was it 2013 2014 that the 16 and 17 year old vote I, I would say inarguably swayed the the result from leave to remain because the turnout among the, the 16 to, to 18s was so high and that didn't have electronic voting as far as I'm aware. So yeah, yeah very good say, point. Um, what was the like the younger vote in the Brexit referendum then? Did the young people vote in that? I believe they did not to the same extent that that they did in the Scottish referendum because it also included 16, 17 year olds, but the, the turnout for the Brexit referendum young, among young people was extremely high in comparison to general and, and local elections. I, I'll be honest that I enjoy the, the pomp and the, the, the electoral process of going down and putting my, my cross in a box. And I think that it isn't a case of, oh, young people don't know how to vote. It's that young people don't have a reason to vote. They, they don't know how it affects them. They don't care or they don't they don't have the political education to make them engaged. And as a, as a young person, which sounds, it makes me sound like a dinosaur saying as a young person, but I, I would say that I've, I've got a pretty good handle on what myself and my, my peers think of the political system. And it isn't a case of, oh, it'd be easier to vote on an app. It's just that pe- young people don't know what meaningful change they can make via their vote. Well, talking about voting, uh, another issue which has cropped up this week, which I, I'm really getting a feel for, is that there are a lot of people on the, the right wing of the Conservative Party, the Boris Johnson supporters, are concerned at the way that the the election of the Richie Sunak to be leader was handled insofar as it was supposed to be a vote by the membership, and mm-hmm. the membership may well have voted for Boris, but the 1922 committee basically carved it up to such an extent that it was a vote by MPs. Mm. And we now have a situation where there is clearly developing a wave of sentiment towards bring back Boris, particularly as, as the Conservatives aren't really improving their position in the polling. And the way to do that 
is to change the way that the leader is elected to ensure that the members do vote. I mean, what's, I'll ask Sam to go first on that. But Sam, what, from your perspective, where is Boris? Is he coming back? And are they, are they going to change the voting system to make sure that we don't have another situation where MPs elect the leader? I spoke about this with Times Radio yesterday, but honestly, I don't know where these rumours are coming from about the bring back Boris sentiment. Because obviously he's always going to have supporters. He was a very enigmatic leader. He did do a lot of good things for the party at one point. He you know, won a massive landslide in 2019 on the Brexit vote. But I honestly haven't been hearing these whisperings and this groundswelling of, of, of grassroots support for Boris. It isn't a case of bring back Boris, in my opinion. I don't think there's anyone that I've spoken to in the party, you know, and, and I know people quite, quite high up in the party. I have a lot of, I used to work in parliament. I have a lot of friends who are MPs or, or in government, et cetera. And I'm just not hearing this sort of, this sort of whispering. I would also say that in comparison to, to Liz Truss, we have improved our standing in the polls quite significantly. And, you know, at, at the point where Boris was at his worst, I also think that inflation has peaked now. We're at the worst place we could possibly be economically. And things, and a lot of, you know, I was reading in, in the FT the other day that the the economic picture in about six months to 12 months is going to be very different to where it is today. And different headlines are going to be being written because the idea that it's going, you know, it peaks, two quarters are going to be pretty dire and then things start to get better. That's, that's, model is the test of time and I think that that's the way that we're heading now the the party from my perspective as a conservative party member as a conservative party activist etc is that we want a stable pair of hands we don't want more uh, more upheaval and more discontent and more infighting and that's what Boris would bring the reason why he stood down from from what I've heard in the conversations that I had was because he knew that he couldn't command a parliamentary majority. He couldn't command the House and he couldn't get his own party to vote on government business. And he, he was aware of that, which is why he elected not to continue on in the race. So if the diehard Boris fans have anyone to be mad about and the fact that they didn't get to vote, it would be Boris himself. I, I know MPs who wrote to him personally and said, I'll sign your nomination papers, but please don't run because you're not going to be able to do anything. It would be suicide for the party. I'll support you personally, but it's not a good, a good move. The mm. focus right now is on getting us out of this economic hardship, getting the country through this. It isn't on my priority. It isn't on winning elections. I'm not even thinking about the 24 election right now. And I don't think a lot of other people are. Right now, we need to make sure that the country is able to, to recover and to bounce back economically. So that's what we should be focusing on rather than you know, gossip mongering about whether Boris is going to make a triumphant Churchillian return, which he isn't. Well said, Sam, and certainly the voice of, of common sense and reason there. But I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not yeah, quite yeah. so sure that mm. all your mm. former colleagues and colleagues would agree. Mm. Murad, what do you think? Well, look, I, I watched him for eight years at City Hall at close, close quarters, and I think uh, his art is basically promise the earth deliver nothing, and then blame someone else afterwards. And he's got away with it. I mean, he beat Ken Livingston twice, for God's sake, you know, 2008 and 2012. Uh, he is a Houdini. Uh, he's, he's pulled off things like this. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty certain there are some very, very nervous Tory MPs in the North uh, uh, who, who will see by the end of... I mean, this, uh, this year is going to get worse economically, as far as I can work out. Uh, the the, uh, the country, uh, if uh, some of us can remember in the 70s, is it's reminiscent of the 70s and where we were there. And, and I'm not sure we've got the same securities that we had then in, in the present context. Uh, we've also got a war in, in the Ukraine, uh, which has had knock-on effects. We've seen that on our energy bills. Who knows what else that may produce? So in that uh, chaos, there's this notion that uh, Boris can come back, I think, has been fostered ultimately by him, him and his ambitions. He's always had that. I think he made it, uh, he made it uh, plain when he left that uh, he could see himself coming back, and he sees himself in a Churchillian context anyway. Um, now, I, I, I did a very snidey thing during, on Twitter when he withdrew um, in, the, in, in that round, possibly against uh, Ricky Sunak, when I suggested he had bottled it. 
And the response I got from uh, people ar around him clearly suggested they had decided this is not the time for him to come back. Uh, let uh, uh, Ricky Sunak take the fall fallout and then he'll come back and, and offer the Tories a way out of the dilemma probably by the end of the year. Hence, uh, my instinct tells me that uh, we're probably going to see him back and that will be an intriguing prospect electorally. Um, the, the other rationale I suspect backbench Tories will give is that in some ways we don't have a presidential elections, but it's always it's always made to appear like that. But the mandate last time was given to him. And if he comes back and if it is better, he, he'll have more credibility than uh, Ricky Sunak, who quite honestly looks like a, a six former um, in, a, in a very big job in, in number 10. And um, we'll see. I think he's a he's a, a technocrat, but I'm not sure that's the way through the mess. Well, I mean, Sam's making a good case for the fact that right now we need a technocrat and mm. ra rather than uh, you know just a charismatic leader mm. that might you know battle yeah, his way through things but sam what, what's going to happen if the may election results are, are terrible or is that already written in i mean i'm i'm not expecting the may election results to be very good like i said <laughs> my priority personally isn't winning a general election right now it's and this is the sentiment that i'm hearing westminster as well from the Tory party, obviously the election is always going to be to be there in the mind's eye. But right now, constituents are suffering. People, ordinary people uh, are finding, are really feeling the squeeze of this economic crisis. And we can't be, be focusing on petty politicking. And frank, quite frankly, this is another story that I think is confined within the Westminster bubble. It doesn't cut through to ordinary people on the ground from what I hear as well. Because I, I sort of have that that understanding of of what it's like uh, yeah, at the grassroots quote quote and then also from what I hear within within Westminster itself people aren't focusing on whether Boris is coming back people want to know whether their whether their taxes are going to be rising whether they're going to be able to to keep a roof over their head whether their the food prices are going to continue to to rise whether inflation has has hit its peak or not People don't care about whether Boris is going to come back. And the fact that this has taken up so much space in the media and, and in the papers is a real shame when there are there are other things that are to be focused on. And I don't that isn't me, you know, saying making an excuse and trying to kick the can down the road at all. I just think that it isn't something that people on the ground are worrying about. It isn't a realistic prospect from what I'm hearing on the inside. You know, the, the whisperings in Westminster aren't to do with okay. Boris making a triumphant return. So it's a real, it's a non-story as far as I'm concerned. Okay, Sam, I think we have to, I mean, we have to accept that you, you, you're pretty well <laughs> clued into what's going on there. And we have to accept that, you know, whatever we might read in the Daily Mail or whatever is not necessarily the way that people are thinking there. But in terms of the country as a whole, do you think the British public are really aware, truly aware of how bad the situation is? Or do you think there's still a certain amount of uh, ostriches putting their heads in the sand? I think people are aware. People people know what's going on. They can feel the, the pinch in their pockets. And I, I will be honest, I think that you know, the, the leadership election that went on a few months ago was a massive distraction from from the, the real issues that were facing the people in, you know, in economic terms. And I'd be interested to hear from Murad what his thoughts are on Labour's economic policy, because I haven't seen a whole lot of, of promising policymaking from Keir Starmer besides him saying, what was it the other day? I'm against austerity but we need to be fiscally responsible which is essentially him saying i'm pro-austerity but i'm not going to call it austerity because i don't want to be accused of, of being a red tory so i think that that right now the direction of the of the government should be focused on on economic relief and ensuring that those that most need financial support are are able to access it yeah, there's no doubt Keir is keeping uh, his powder dry on this uh, on, on these matters. He doesn't because he doesn't have to uh, do too much whilst the Tories are cutting themselves up so 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 badly and knocking their reputation any reputation they had left about running the economy well. And, and it's clear, you know, trade unions are doing the running and uh, protecting their members' uh, standards of living. Uh, that's why we're having so many 
strikes at the moment. That's why so many people are joining them. And the ones I've seen around me in Paddington are clearly being publicly supported because they can see that their challenge is important. The idea that people can accept wage increases well below the rate of inflation and in real terms, cut so some so seven to eight percent in their standard of living, is staggering in this in this day and age when we've been accustomed to many decades of you know uh, two or three percent growth and all that comes with that. That certainty has gone, and uh, I, and there's no doubt that Brexit has had an impact on this as well. We haven't really had the Tories admit to what uh, uh, what uh, the implications have been in recent in the last two or three years since we've left. Uh, um, uh, the European Union in terms of our trade uh, and 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 uh, tra- trading and uh, the rest of the economy uh, and also you know the energy thing has been a real sting. The only thing on the energy is that thankfully we've had a, a reasonably mild winter so far. It could have been a lot worse, but it will get uh, well once we get into the second winter with the setup. People will be asking genuine questions of why isn't the government telling the oil and gas companies to 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 to, to stump up more rather than let them continue making their super super levels of profits on the back of people's standards of living. Those are the crunches I see, and I don't see the picture getting any better. And whilst a technocrat can handle that up to a certain degree, that um, I think that's why I think the Tories will fall back on uh, charismatic personalities uh, to, to see them through uh, another election, uh, because actually one of the things they're very good at is, um, well, their main focus is always keeping power, and, and that's how they'll see it when it comes in 2004. There isn't going to be any surprises on that front. They're going to delay it till the very end. But I, I think it's going to get much, much worse before, before it gets better. Before it gets better. Well, I, I agree with you. Let me ask you another question. With the, with the perception in the country, and of course there'll be people that disagree with this, but with the perception in the country being that actually Brexit probably was a big mistake, and maybe it was a luxury which we can no longer afford, and it is making us all poorer. And of course there are other factors, <clears> but Brexit is certainly a factor in, in that, and people coming up with all the stories about how difficult it is trading with with Europe and so forth. And and the perception in the country is acceptance of this now, that this is the case. Why won't Keir Starmer come out and say that that's the the situation that we're in and that Brexit is part of the problem? Like I said, Keir is keeping his powder dry. He doesn't need to say too much because the uh, the present government's cutting themselves up all over the place. Uh, I think nearer the time when the election comes, we'll hear a, a clearer perspective, no doubt. Uh, and, and and that would be right and proper. Dare he even bring this sort of elephant in the room out in the fear that he might lose votes in the in the working class seats, the red wall seats up north, which he needs to to make sure that he gets back gets into power. Yeah, Chris, that's a judgment I mean, call to be made later by Keir. I, I don't think this is the time, probably, given the, the state we're in already. I mean, look, but every place around uh, my neck of the woods. Uh, is 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 on strike. The hospital, the post office, the railway stations, the ambulance station. There's nothing left that we consider the old public sector that isn't in uproar. And those challenges need to be met firsthand before we even get there. I think, and that will need a considerable amount of effort uh, from the present government to, to resolve. They're not even uh, well, even when they're sitting with uh, the trade unions, and they're, they're setting agendas beyond. Uh, just the pay disputes that we've got at the moment and bringing in other things like productivity. I mean, I personally, I can't see what more we can ask our nurses in hospitals at the moment after two years of COVID and what they've had to do to, to keep uh, many of us alive. We're expecting them to inc- uh, increase the productivity whilst getting um, a measly 2% um, uptake on their wages. That's where we are at the moment. And I think it's best to keep the focus on those issues uh, and they're very real, as Sam has said, and they're not going to be forgotten. I asked this question last week. I'm going to ask you both here now. What <laughs> what wage settlement would you offer the, the nurses then? Murad, what percentage would you offer the nurses right now to, to get well, out, get us I, out of this? I would certainly look favourably at something which keeps them on par with the present rate of inflation. I, I, I think that's the least we can do. Uh, as I said, so you'd, you'd offer about you'd offer well, them ten yeah, percent. Well, you know, yeah, I, current rates of inflation. I, I think that's 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 just to keep them going at their present present level of standards, uh, living standards. And, and, and Sam, would you would you offer them ten percent then? Well, I, I first just want to just jump in. I, I will answer the question very quickly in a second, but I just want to jump in and say that I think it, it's slightly disingenuous to say that um, 
the government in roundtable talks with nurses and saying that they need to increase their productivity. That isn't at all the case. You know, generalizing it and saying that, oh, they're asking the nurses who have worked uh, two years in, in the pandemic to increase productivity isn't true. I think that when when headlines refer to that, it's more talking about the train strikers and, and other sectors. It isn't talking about vital NHS services because everyone, especially in this government, knows that that nurses and the NHS are, are stretched thin as it is and that nurses are heroes of this country. So I, I just wanted to just defend that, that part quickly first. I would say that something realistic with in line for inflation would be would be sensible. I'd say something about at least 7%, which is below current rates of inflation, but with a view to increasing, committing to, to a further increase as the economy gets better. I think that 2%, I I agree isn't enough. I think that the, the rate of pay should increase higher than it is, but it should be more of a long-term commitment. So uh, a higher increase of, of around 7% and then a commitment to, to increase it in line with inflation once the, the economy gets in a slightly more stable state. Yeah. But I, yeah, I just had to jump in and say that that, that well, comment, I didn't agree with that at all. Well, Sam, can I just- Well, we, we, all, we all seem to be in agreement with that, including even in last week's edition, my- my right-wing guess that, but the government aren't doing anything about it. Why? Why? Why not just come up and say, look, you know what, nurses, ten percent. That's it. Chris, can I just add? Look, we've also got a problem with recruitment. We still need another twenty thousand nurses, and we we ain't going to give get another twenty thousand extra nurses if we're going to give them wage levels well below cost of living and increases that don't keep pace with it. Um, I, I, if we're going to do solve the, uh, the national health service problems as, as they clearly are in the long run, it's not just social care, but it's actually getting the the, 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 the labour that we need, both nurses and doctors. You know, the doctors situation, I think we, we just need to start training more, more doctors here in the UK domestically and, and build that uh, capacity up over the years and, and, and keep that safe and solid. But certainly with nurses, uh, there's no doubt I think they've got that case. And if we're going to... Um, plug those gaps uh, we certainly do need to offer them a good settlement uh, and bearing that in mind as well as the predicament of the present nurses well that's fair enough right Sam should MPs have second jobs as uh, a lot of MPs have been quite busy with their second jobs recently we've had Matt Hancock uh, hardly call it a second job but doing uh, I'm a celebrity get me out of here there's other stories I mean the Jeffrey Cox is making millions uh, or Two or a couple of million. Boris has made so much more money giving speeches. I mean, should these people be in the House of Commons, you know, actually dealing with things like the nurses' pay rise rather than swanning around the world doing other jobs? I'd say that I, I took issue with this as well when the, these headlines were reported because. I, I would say that there's a big difference between after dinner speeches and second jobs. Theresa May was one that was reported that she makes a great deal of money from quote unquote second jobs. The majority of these are university speeches, after dinner events, speaking events. And as a former prime minister, I would say that she would be uh, rightly so in, in high demand. Obama makes makes a, a great deal of money through through endorsements and through uh, speaking engagements and things like that. Boris Johnson, although he isn't my favourite prime minister as a conservative, he is also uh, rightly in demand for his expertise. David Cameron has done similar things on the on the public speaking circuits. Jess Phillips made twenty five thousand from a from a, an appearance on a on a panel show. I would say that MPs should be getting paid a great deal more than they are right now. And that we're not ready for that conversation, obviously. I'm not saying that MPs should be getting a massive pay rise, but the, the reality is that, uh, yes, MPs are getting paid greatly above the, the national average income, but should they be? Yes, I think so. I think that they should. I, I would say that there's a difference between, once again, legitimate interests and things that are... are perhaps beneficial or that are are useful versus taking dodgy Russian money. We're not talking about an expenses scandal. Everything that's been that's been declared has been done so, you know, all all by the book and and is legitimate. So we should perhaps be thinking whether politics right now is worth it for people to get involved in. You know, you face the constant threat of, of violence, harassment. Having worked for an MP for two years, I can say the number of death threats and harassment and and just vitriol that you get on a daily basis for doing public service. A lot of MPs, both in Labour and the Conservatives, take a massive pay cut 
to go into public service because they think that it is something that's worthwhile and they want to do. And they aren't, in my opinion, compensated to the level that that they ought to be in comparison to other to other government officials. You know, a lot of civil servants are getting paid more than MPs, top civil servants, yeah. for mm. doing far. Well, I, I, I agree. I mean, I, I think we, we, we pay so little. There must be a lot of talented people that are thinking about they would really like to, to serve the country and to contribute, but they can't do it because why should I take a big pay cut in order to do it? Because they've mm. got, they may have mortgages and children to... Uh, to look after and maybe older relatives or God knows what, they've got demands on their finances and exactly. are they going to take a pay cut to, to and I would say, take that? Yeah, I would say just personally from, from my own experience, like I said, working for an MP through the pandemic for two years, people often say, oh, MPs are just swanning around Westminster doing this and that, doing drinks, whatever. MPs work very, very hard and it'll be the same on the Labour side. I, I have some friends who are either Labour MPs or who uh, are Labour staffers. And the the sort of demand on on MPs' times and on their offices is is in, inordinate. And the whole expenses thing of, oh, ex-MP claimed 180,000, 165,000 of that will have been on staffing and office costs because their staff have to get paid and have to get incorrectly, in my opinion, classed as expenses rather than being separated as, you know, a staffing budget or whatever. I think that the idea of second jobs, there needs to be a bit more nuance and transparency in that, in in the way that, you know, Fiona Bruce was another one that was um, quoted as, as earning a great deal of, of money. She owns, I, I, we actually shared an office space with her in Parliament when I worked there, and she owns a law firm. She is the, the managing partner of a law firm. She doesn't do that law firm work during parliamentary hours. She's always working and, and serving her constituents from everything that I saw. But all of those profits that are claimed by her law firm will have to be declared because she is still a managing partner there. So yeah. I, I would say that the there just needs to be a bit more nuance. This isn't people, you know, making millions from dodgy Russian business dealings and, and so forth. It, it, it just is, there's a lot of drawing conclusions where conclusions aren't necessarily correct. Well, Murad, I mean, it, saying let's pay the MPs more money is going to go down like a, you know, like yeah, a yeah, exactly. I, I, but, I, but, but honestly, the situation is not right the way it is. So there's yeah. got to be a change somewhere. Well, look, I, I personally, I think a lot of the public think that 84000 a year is quite a considerable wage uh, with all the perks that uh, MPs, uh, members of parliament get uh, on top. And uh, let's just, I mean, for example, I mean, MPs have got themselves a £2,000 pay rise without too much problems. You know, they vote for their own pay increases effectively. I, the, what, the problem that I think is not at the, the lecturing end and what have you, it's actually when you've got professionals like lawyers and doctors, you know, that, that, that to maintain their registration as doctors and lawyers very often, they have to keep on working or a, a, a certain basic number of hours. I, I, I would go as strict as uh, making that clear that that's also difficult that that shouldn't really be granted yes we do need their expertise but we put that in another um, place maybe the lords or ad advisors to the executive and what have you i think the commons is, has got too many uh, lawyers and what have you uh, anyway it's 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 dominated by the legal profession and the pr people those balances need to be sorted uh, and, and they tend to have more access to these other sources of income. So it seems to be a self-perpetuating um, vehicle for, for some vested interest. I think the, the more Parliament reflects the population of Great Britain, the better. And I think we're getting there. I mean, I think one of the best things Labour did was to have 50% women's only shortlisting for the MPs that we've got in, in the Commons. That That's made some inroads to get those perspectives that we hadn't had historically. But the other thing we've got to look at is, uh, and I think Sam's touched on it, you know, some of the practices of our MPs offices go way beyond anything that's acceptable. The management of personnel, they're essentially, you know, little business entities. And, and I think I'd rather see it in the same setup as local and regional governments setups when those of us elected in those areas. I've got clear functions. And for example, I, I, I was, when I had a PA and when I had researchers, I wasn't directly employing them. It was actually the city hall that employed them. So they had some protection against any abuses that I could make. I mean, some of the stories I'm sure Sam will be familiar with. Uh, I've come from that relationship between direct one-to-one -one relationship with MPs. In her case, it sounds like it worked, but in many cases it doesn't. There's a need for a whole series of reforms 
on that front. And I think uh, having a second job is one of those areas which we've got to be clear about. And I think the public would welcome it. Surely we've got to improve the calibre of our MPs because you know, we, we hear week, week after week another story of an MP in, in some kind of disgrace. And honestly, I mean, we used to look up to our MPs and I think the message that we're sending to the public yeah. right now is that MPs are not necessarily to be trusted. No, no, and there's no doubt about it. I, I think that recent histories to do with the way uh, that the, the MPs' offices are set up and allowed to be set up. I, I think they need to be brought into a wider administration. Like I said, the employment stuff is the stuff I, I find most horrendous. I mean, the number of accusations of sexual assault against, dare I say, Tory MPs is something which doesn't look very good in the public. And I know, and it's very close to the uh, to the nerve for a lot of people who work in, in, in the House of Commons. That needs sorting. That's the kind of stuff I think we, we also need to sort out as well as the wages, but at least with the wages, I think that the, 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 the MPs have got more access to influence in that than most of us have influence in our daily wage. Well, they, they've got influence in it, but they've got the, they've got the court of public opinion on the other side yeah. of it. So it's, it's not like they've got a free run at deciding what mm. they want. But Prince Harry, <laughs> is, is Prince Harry a threat to our constitutional monarchy? <laughs> I think that, if anything, he's saving the royal family. I haven't seen a, a book launch or a, a PR campaign backfire quite so spectacularly on someone as I have with Prince Harry's spare mm. memoir. I think that, honestly, he should have stopped with, with the Oprah interview because at least, well, from, from that, the British public definitely weren't on his side because immediately you could point out a lot of holes because we had knowledge of the royal family, we had knowledge of, of how how things went at the time. You know, when when Meghan said that, for example, that um that she didn't know anything about the royal family or about Harry's family, that she wasn't aware of them but properly before then. There's photos of her when she was 14 outside Buckingham Palace. And she's an actress, of course, an actress researches their role or researches the, you know, the environment they're gonna end up in. But Harry he doesn't need a book deal. He needs therapy. And this is say from someone who is also deeply traumatized by parental loss. I, you know, I, I suffered with the loss of my father quite horrifically at a young age. And I can say that the issues that he is, that he is, you know, airing out and the, the grievances that he has and the struggles that he is so clearly going through should be addressed, but they should be addressed privately. It seems as though they're, they're self in, they're self-imploding and and it's quite sad to watch really once you get past the the titters about you know about frostbitten knobs and and so forth <laughs> i think that prince harry isn't a threat to the constitutional monarchy he's a threat to himself and i worry for his own mental state at the moment and and how he's going to feel perhaps in 10 15 years about what he's been yeah. doing right now because yeah, I, I wonder if there's any more skeletons in any closets that uh, haven't come out. I wonder if there's any stories that's like, well, if you come out with that one, mate, we're going to come out with this one. Do you well, think there's an element of that still? The royal family has always been very tight-lipped when it comes to, to internal affairs. It's always been don't explain and don't complain. And I don't think that we're going to see a royal family response to Prince Harry and, and Meghan's their revelations because that just isn't in line with how the royal family operates i would say that that if anything it's reflecting very poorly on on harry and Meghan because it seems as though they're just trying to drag their family through the mud because they're a little bit bitter about how things went when the the best comparison is is king edward and wallace simpson when he abdicated they you know sodded off to france took a monthly allowance and stayed quiet because at least King Edward, he had some some very big grievances with the royal family and with the institution and the firm. But he at least had a sense of duty to his country and loyalty to, loyalty to his family still. It seems as though to make a quick payday, Harry is alienating himself from his entire family. And those from familial bonds are something that, that transcend money and power and influence and the public opinion uh, i think that he's the more they talk the more people begin to turn against them because the holes in their story and the the double standards and that sort of you know a political political ideology and the, the clear bitterness and anger that they have it all begins to shine through hmm. so murad is, is this is this whole story going to die a death is it going to or, or is it going to be with us for months days months weeks years what? to come whatever 
Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm just uh, grateful. I, 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 we don't need to watch EastEnders anymore. We just need to watch <laughs> the family. The, um, no, look, I am sympathetic to him in, 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 in regards to the tabloid press. I do think they've got to take responsibility for the death of his mother. Uh, but I'm not sympathetic with him about, um, you know, bragging about killing 25 people in Afghanistan. Mm. It's the kind of thing which, you know, it, it, you know, I, I've come across people who, who have probably killed, and I don't think that, 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 that you know, that it's, it's something that uh, I think uh, you should keep to yourself quietly. And I think actually, yeah. the, the, the well, the, the, I think the thing about that was that it that upset the one support base that he has with the. Yeah. People yeah. that are more sympathetic to him, yeah. the more maybe more liberal-minded people yeah, exactly. that you know yeah. that sympathise with him, and he comes out with something like that, yeah. which I think it was very ill advised to do because yeah. that did actually yeah. upset that particular yeah. segment of society. Yeah, without any doubts, and and it certainly lost lost me. And I'm just, I'm, you know, you just wondered to yourself. I mean, I, I, as far as I'm aware, the British military isn't uh, isn't trained to go around boasting in, in that manner. Exactly. Whatever way, whatever way it was written, I hear there are some issues in the way it was written. So is is a downer on, on that front. As for the long term future of the family, look, I, I don't, ex I didn't expect Charles to, I don't expect him to last more than ten years anyway. I think this will shorten his his time as as king of, of king of the country, uh, and I, I think it will hasten though some reforms at least. I mean, uh, I, I'm just, uh, I just think we, we talked about cost of living crisis for. For most of our uh, most most of us in, in the United Kingdom, um, I think they've got to look at themselves as well on that front. Uh, we're going to have a huge coronation. I know it's good for the country, they'll say and what have you, but I, I do think we should be also mindful of the circumstances of most people who are going to be watching in this country whilst we have this happening. Whether they can make it up again, I, I really don't know. But like I said, it beats uh, an episode of EastEnders, certainly. And I'm sorry to say I can see it continuing and and, and losing uh, a, a lot of the personal appeal the royal family may have um, in the long Sam, run. Sam, agree with that, that you know it's going to go on for a long time and it's going to ultimately be detrimental overall? Oh, I think it's going to go on for a long time. But I, I disagree that it's going to be detrimental for King Charles, Prince William and Kate. I, what we've seen from the British side, at least, I don't know about the Americans, but mm. from the British side, at least, I've seen a groundswelling of support for, for Prince William and, and for Princess Kate, the Princess of Wales. Mm. We, we've seen King Charles's popularity and Camilla's, by extension, continue to rise. When, when you look at surveys and polls, their, their popularity is at an all-time high, partly because of the Queen's influence in soft-launching, quote-unquote, his, his ascension to the throne, getting him to, to take over certain, certain roles and, and stating that Camilla should be known as, as Queen Consort. But we aren't seeing the, the massive public turning against King Charles that, that people were expecting in the face of the Queen's death. I think that people have accepted his his rule. People are, are seeing that they're doing a good job at keeping calm and carrying on and embodying that British spirit that the Queen exemplified in just, you know, keeping their heads down and focusing on what's important. And all I can say is, thank goodness, Prince William is the heir to the throne and not Prince Harry, because, <laughs> because at least at least he and his family, and I'm as much as people can be anti anti-monarchist or they can be you know, against the royal family, you can't deny that William and Kate are a far better, uh, they're a far better example of what the royal family should be yeah. and how they yeah. act, how they carry themselves than Harry and Meghan swanning off to America and abandoning their own country. Well, I mean, I, I think that, that's certainly the case. I mean, I, I have a little sympathy with Harry and Svar. I watched the, the, the uh, CBS 60 Minutes interview in full, mm. I thought Harry came over very well, but I think he is being very badly advised on mm. some of the things he's saying. And certainly in the case of, uh, of Camilla, it was good for him to say that he wanted his father to be happy and she made him happy and that he liked her as yeah. a person. But he also made some derogatory comments about her as mm. well, which I think actually in that situation, well, just don't say that, you know, mm. simple as that. Mm. You know, you've got to know what, when, to, yeah. when to keep your mouth shut. Yeah, I just want the royal family to be more like the European uh, royal families. You know that they that they're less uh, accustomed to being in the public arena, getting on with their daily lives without reliance on us. I, I think we've got to cut down the numbers and leave uh, leave those at the top uh, to, to to be the head of state. 
Um, and well, I, I think in the way that they probably know that already. Yeah. That, and I think we are we are gradually moving in that direction. Yeah. But we wouldn't want to be, to get rid of all of the pomp because, as we know, some of that pomp is what brings in tourists and mm. and uh, foreign it's, revenue into the country. I mean, I don't necessarily agree with the the idea that the coronation, for example, is going to be more unpopular than it is popular in in times of hardship and in times of 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 strife i mean we saw it in world war ii one of the things that really brought the british public together back then were the the big dances and the shows of of support from the royal family when they would come out on the balcony etc i think that the cost of the the queen's funeral was about one pound fifty per per british person per british taxpayer but it brought in millions upon millions upon millions in tourism in you know in in revenue when it comes to the royal family and the the sort of global impact that the royal family has had because let's be honest the the royal family in in the uk is unlike any other they are a global phenomenon and they they bring us in billions in in tourism and in 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 revenue every single year so the i'd say the benefits of the royal family both in an international peacekeeping and and you know, in their efforts to foster positive relations with the international community and in their economic benefits are far are far greater than their their pitfalls. And the the royal family in Europe has always had a, a traditionally smaller role. So I think that this is the royal family are definitely yeah. here to stay and we as a country are traditionalists. We err yeah. on the side of tradition just naturally. So I don't think we're going to be seeing people getting rid of the royal family anytime soon. No, I think I agree with you. I think we are where we are, and I mm. think we've. I also think we've nailed it. Uh, <laughs> in the in the nicest possible way, of course. But you've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you to both my guests, Samantha and Murad, for a fantastic conversation. I really appreciate the way you expressed your views. I thought it was uh, really great. Tweet us at Right on the Nail and get involved in the conversation. And if you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and a rating on your podcast app. We would really appreciate that. You can sign up to receive an email when a new episode drops at our website, rightonthenail.fm. The podcast was created and produced by Podcast Partners. You can find out more about them at podcastpartners.com. And remember, there's a new episode every week. So catch you next time on Right on the Nail. I've hit the nail.